Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we're joined by Victoria Clark, who is currently starring as Margaret Johnson, the, the mother of uh, the, the young daughter who is named Clara Johnson in The Light in the Piazza at the Vivian Beaumont Theater at Lincoln Center. Welcome, Hi. Victoria. Hi. Hi. Good, good to see you off stage, <laughs> as opposed to on stage. I, I, I hear I look pretty different. You look very different off stage. <laughs> Years younger. <laughs> That's a good thing. I read somewhere that when uh, they were thinking of casting you for the part, they were saying you're too young, and you said. That's why God invented wigs. That's correct. That's actually that's <laughs> yep. That's true. It's a true story. I heard Fable, um, the last song that I sing in the show. I heard a track of that about I think it's about four years ago now, and my friend Ted Sperling, who is conducting the show, played it for me. Um, he played it for me live in in my living room, and I as soon as he left the apartment, I called up Adam, who is a colleague of mine from Yale, and. Uh, said, I don't care. I will pull out all my teeth and line them up in a row if you, do, if you give me an audition for this part. And he called back and said that I was, I looked too young to play the part. Mm-hmm. And that's when I left him the message, that's why God invented wigs. So, <laughs> it's a funny line. Well, you know, I, 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 because the show takes place in the early 50s and the, the style of dressing was so different, much more formal, much more elegant, and the hairstyles were so different. I mean, it's, I, there is a radical transformation. So I'm glad that I look different. That well, makes you, me very happy. If, if you look at movies made in those days, even young girls look rather matronly the way that they dressed right. and made up. Right, so. exactly, <laughs> exactly. And also it helps me that it's such a change from what I look like in real life. It's, it's, it's wonderful to have that kind of transformation. It makes getting ready for the part um, more of a process, more of an acting process. But you did have to go through... Uh, a lot of auditions in order to get this part, even though there were there were work, it was people that you knew. Did, were you really fighting an uphill battle because they had a preconceived notion of you and you had to change that? Well, I think that um, no one really knew what the show was. Adam knew he needed a soprano, which certainly gave me um, an edge because he wanted a really strong singer and a strong musician, and so that gave me an edge over some other actors possibly. And then. Um, they, uh, Craig Lucas, I had never met before, and Bartlett Shear, who was the artistic director at the Intamon, had only seen me in one production of uh, an off-Broadway production of Marathon Dancing, where I played a mute clown. So he didn't actually hear <laughs> so me the sing or speak. was irrelevant in that. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he really was surprised to see me coming in. I think, um, but I, uh, he he had heard from other people that. I would be a strong candidate. And I did fight hard for it because I knew when I heard that one song that I would be able to um, do something special with it. I just knew in my heart. So at what point did you get involved with the show? We often talk on this program about workshops and readings and, and productions. And of right. course, you've mentioned the Intamon, and this show had multiple productions. When did, when did you join well, the party? Well, there's only one stage that I haven't done of this piece, and there was, a, there was a reading three summers ago, just about now, at the Sundance Theater Lab in Sundance. And I was not involved in that. It was two weeks, and there was no pay involved. And I'm a single mom, and that wasn't financially possible for me. And uh, Mary Claire Heron did that. Um, and she's a, a completely different kind of singer. And she was wonderful. I hear from everybody she was beautiful. But Adam really wanted a soprano. And so they held auditions for other kinds of singers. And um, that's, when I, that's when I came in. And, and Craig Lucas actually called me up on Thanksgiving Day. I only had two auditions for it. And he called me up after my first audition. And he said, 
were really pulling for you. Well, first of all, when the phone rang at 9 o'clock on Thanksgiving, I thought somebody was pulling my leg because, you know, I said, Ooh. hi, it's Craig Lucas. Who's this? It's Craig Lucas. It's on like, Thanksgiving. And I said, yes, exactly. <laughs> sure, Craig. <laughs> and I was like, who is this really? Mm. And when he finally convinced me that, indeed, it was Craig Lucas, um, and I calmed down a little bit, he just said, you know, you know, we're pulling for you, and 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 uh, or you had a very strong audition, and we have some other strong candidates coming in, and think about a couple of things, and and he gave me some adjustments to think about because he was going to be directing the production at the Intamon, and um, I, I guess I showed them the adjustments they needed to see. Cause now, it was it was a two and a half year process between the workshops, Seattle, Chicago, until I finally got to New York, something like that. Right, and we did one week reading um, in December, two and a half years ago, in Adam's loft in down in Soho, where we just read through the script, and mm-hmm. Craig and Adam needed to hear things, and uh, there were several changes. Uh, Dividing day used to be a song that that Roy Johnson, the American husband, sang, and um, that was the first reading where they switched that and gave it to Margaret. And that was the first time I tried reading through the, the script with a North Carolina dialect because they had never heard it that way. And that that uh, there were fun things that happened in situations like that, and that never went away. Now, they you, heard it one time with the dialect, and that's the way it stayed. Now, you, you have family. Your, your mother lives in North Carolina. My mother lives in North Carolina <laughs> and has subsequently befriended Elizabeth Spencer, which has been a lot of fun. Who, who wrote the novella. Yes, yeah, she's the author of the novella. And um, my, grand, my, my grandparents and my father were are all North Carolinians and um, – my mother was born and raised in Tennessee, and my grandmother was from Tennessee. So I have a lot of Southern blood in my family. So when you put on the North Carolina accent, the Winston-Salem, I think it is? Yes, Winston-Salem. Mm-hmm. That's where the character is from. Right. How, how did the accent come about? Did you decide well, to do that yourself? I have yourself? it in my ear. I have it in my ear. Uh, so I, I have, you know, their basic things about the dialect that are very, you know, sort of obvious. And then um, I actually, there's... <laughs> Uh, my son is 10, and one of his classmates has a mother who grew up in Virginia and lived in North Carolina for many years, and I always loved her accent. So I asked her to read through the script, and she has read through it for me about three times over the course of the different productions. And she is the only dialect coach I've had. I mean, we've had fantastic dialect coaches um, through through the different productions at all the different theaters, and uh, they basically just said, we're not going to touch it. You know, just do what you're doing. Now, when you were developing in your mind the character of Margaret Johnson, had you read Elizabeth Spencer's novella? Had you seen the movie with Olivia de Havilland? No, I won't watch the movie because I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a big stealer of everybody else's business. So I I won't watch anything. And I also think she's brilliant. So I, I will immediately be intimidated when I see it. So I. I wanted to do something completely mine, and but I did read the novella over and over again. Sure, I've, I don't know how many times I've read it, but I read it all the time. <laughs> so, in in your mind, who is Margaret Johnson? What is she like? Well, I think um, I love this character. I love her. I love I love her mostly for her flaws. Um, that's how I hook up. That's how I get into her because I think um, sometimes when we write in the theater, we tend to. Uh, Actors get a hold of scripts and they seem to be people who are icons or people who are just sort of larger than life. And and uh, Margaret is just so real. I think she's so human. And that's what I love about her. I, I think she's um, she's a mother. She's a wife. She's she's lonely. Her primary relationship is with her daughter. She's, um, you know, she's repressed. She's burdened. 
she is perhaps an overly protective mother, shielding her daughter. Right, overly protective, but by by necessity because of um, you know trouble that the daughter's gotten into before. And um, I mean, if 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 the daughter w- wasn't handicapped, I think that she would you know, be a very different person and be up to a lot of different things in her day. <laughs> I think that her whole life really revolves around Now, she is a mother in the early 1950s. How does she differ, or does she differ at all, from a mother of 2005, do you think? Well, I mean, I can talk about how she's different from me as I mother. I, I mean, I think she has more financial resources than many modern mothers have. I, she doesn't have the necessity of needing to work like a lot of modern mothers need to do. And she's, um, I mean, everything just took more time than I think, in, in, and especially in the South, in North Carolina, there's a grace, there's a gracefulness and a generosity of living that differs starkly from New York. Between being a mother yourself, having roots of some sort in North Carolina, how much of Victoria Clark is there in Margaret Johnson? There's quite a bit. And vice versa. Well, that's how I let, that's when I'm putting a role together, I always try to find up the connecting points uh, so I can bring as much truth into the acting. So th- there are quite a few links. Such as? <laughs> oh, oh, you're going to make me say? Yes, absolutely. Well, um, I-, I mean, I use my humor to cover up disappointment quite a bit. And, and that's a very Southern trait. I And um, I think that uh, I-, I use... I use <laughs> This is going to sound funny, but I, I use I, I use my charm as a weapon. I think Margaret certainly does that. That's also very Southern. Um, she she can get her way by a smile and a giggle, and uh, you know she uses her intelligence in a very crafty way. Um, I think you know we're both looking for something. We're both yearning for a lot of things. That's very human. And uh, she's uh, madly in love with her child. I'm madly in love with my son. Um, and uh, you know, there, there. I think I've made mistakes as a as a woman and as an actor and as a person. And and I I really wouldn't have known too much what to do with this part if I had gotten it when I was younger. So um, I use all that life experience to bear in this role. As you were developing your character, you you alluded already to to a major transition as the show went through its incarnations, which was that originally Craig Lucas was directing this himself, mm-hmm. and Bart Scherr, who was the artistic director at the Intamon, joined the project mm-hmm. as a result of that. And of course, as you went along, you also had some cast changes, including mm-hmm. most significantly the actress playing your daughter right. uh, changed. Mm-hmm. How did the change of director and later the change in this in this very key performer mm-hmm. change what you were doing? Well, that's a good question. I mean, anytime you're putting together a theater piece, there's so much... Um, I mean, to be true to what's happening in the process of developing a piece, there are some uh, issues that have to be dealt with, and I think that the creative team felt that it would be better if Craig had more of an objective eye and was just working on the writing aspect of it, and um, I mean, I can't really say that decision came down, you know, independent of the actors. I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but um, I do know that that everyone sort of, 
emerged from it in one piece. Because we should say that this is all of these incarnations are not for profit incarnations mm-hmm, at different mm-hmm. institutions. So it's not a case of, oh, the producer who's bringing it to Broadway says mm-hmm. we're not going to the next step. It right. really was growing out of the art, of the process that the artists themselves were, mm-hmm. were driving. I, and I think growing is the key word that you're using. I mean, everything was really, the seeds have been planted and the, the, the piece was beginning to really blossom and tell us what it needed. And um, in the case of Celia Keenan-Bolger, who, who played my daughter in the first two productions at the Intamon and then at the Goodman in Chicago, um, the piece really seemed to need someone who played a slightly older. Who In, in, the, in the novel, Claire is 26 years old, and, and Celia, no matter what... Um, you know, what she did with her hair and makeup. I mean, she just came across a little more youthful than that. Well, considering that she's on Broadway now playing yeah. mm-hmm. a junior high school student in Spelling Bee is right. certainly evidence of, of how she reads. But I do have to say that the three actors who, who are not in the piece now, who had a huge impact on the development, um, Wayne Wilcox, who played Fabrizio in Chicago, mm-hmm. and Steve Stephen Pasquale, who played Fabrizio in Seattle, and Celia Keenan-Bolger, who played Celia, uh, who played Clara in all three, in in the workshop and at Sundance and the two other productions, they their work is all over this piece because of how collaborative the process was, and and they're all really really intelligent actors, and they all had really good questions to ask, and so and we're all ha- we all happen to be very good friends. So basically, what happens is we see each other all the time, and we get together frequently, and I think that they know that. Um, I feel that their contributions are significant and very much alive in the piece. And same with Craig's direction. His direction was absolutely brilliant and was very magical um, and and was very psychological in a way. So I know that the development, uh, what I learned from Craig as a director is is highly significant and, and uh, is really sort of the anchor of what I'm doing even now two years later. Now, the show and you, various folks on the show, total of uh, 11 Tony nominations, including Best Musical, including Mm -hmm. you as Best Actress in a Musical, Mm -hmm. and Kelly O'Hara, Best Featured Actress, and uh, Matthew Morrison as Best Featured Actor, Adam Gettle, of course, for The Score, the book by Craig Lucas, just a whole slew of Tony nominations. Mm -hmm. The orchestrations. 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 Mm -hmm. Barton shares uh, direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one to forget set design, costume design, lighting Mm -hmm. design, just a slew of nominations. Um, (laughs) This seems like a great confluence of all the planets being in the right configuration, but two and a half years of work to get to this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to what do you th- attribute the success of the show so far? Well, you know, I think, first of all, Bart, Bartlett, she, our director, and Adam and Craig really knew what they wanted to say. And they certainly had a lot of people talking to them about maybe you should do this, maybe you should do that, including the actors. I mean, we, and they're very – the way rehearsal works with that team is very collaborative. But they would listen and listen, and but they never, ever veered from their vision – and I think that's that's why the show is successful. They're saying what they want to say and in the way that they want to say it. I mean, Craig, Craig, you know, he has Margaret just breaking that fourth wall and coming down and talking to the audience all night long. That's the way he wants to tell the story. It's a very intimate – it's a way to tell the story. It's a very sort of um, naked, exposed way. It's very emotional. Um, it's very brave. And Adam's score is exactly the way musically he wants to tell the story. And 
And what I love about it is that they they stuck to their guns and they said, this is the true expression of how we want to do this. And and um, in terms of my success in the piece, and I, I, I claim it because I, I'm really proud of the work that we're doing, I, I feel that I'm doing the same thing, that I'm not really letting – I'm listening to their ideas and advice, but I'm really following my heart with this performance and I'm doing what I know – I want to do in the way that I can do it. And it takes every extension cord in my being. I mean, everything is plugged in when I do this part. And of course, Elizabeth Spencer's original novella, the basic story that's there. Unbelievably creative and brave story and very, very strong characters and very strong uh, writing for women in particular. Um, But it's um, what Craig and and uh, Adam did was give Margaret a sex drive, which is <laughs> not necessarily in the book. Yeah. Um, and they made the romance very palpable between the children. And um, they gave Margaret a romance with the, the, the Italian father, who's played by Mark Harlick, beautifully played by him. And it's um, – they've added some really good things. They've, had, they've really beefed up the Roy character back in the U.S. So they've taken this, uh-huh. this really remarkable story and they've, they've added – um, meat and it's not padding; it's meat and it's real. And the storytelling is beautiful, and it's um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to, to perform this. Piece. Has Miss Spencer been up to see it? Oh yes, yes, yes. And she's come to all three cities. And what is her opinion? I think she's very proud of it. Uh-huh. Um, from what from what I know from what from speaking to her, I think she's very happy with it. Of course, then it's also the music, which has been hailed as being very uh, significant musical contribution by Adam Gettle. This music, I mean, I don't know how you all feel when you when you saw it, but I I feel that the thing that I like about the score and the thing about that I like about performing the score is that it is psychological extension of thought. So, in other words, you know, the first song they sing, "Dividing Day," is sort of low and it's jazzy and it's sort of chromatic and wonderful, and then. Uh, you know, other things later in the piece are sit much higher in my register and are much more um, sort of like explosions of vocal soprano sound. And and it's um, – they're all appropriate for the acting moment. So actually this is the first time I can say I've actually done a role where I haven't been aware that I was singing. There's a technique going on that is just when the music begins, it's an extension of thought, hmm. which is what, you know, what, what musical theater teachers, and I'm one of them, you know, we're always yelling at our students about – don't make a transition between scene and song. and Just go right into it. And Adam really makes that possible, and Craig really makes it possible. When you're in the scenes that Craig wrote, it feels like you're doing a play. And then when you're singing, for me, it feels like I'm still in the play. It's, uh-huh. And, I, and uh, I've, I've really been cautioned by Adam and Ted Sperling, the music director, both to um, – to stay in actor head, you know, not yeah, to that it just it. kind of transitions naturally into a song, mm-hmm. which we'll do right now, I think. <laughs> the, 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 the brand new CD, The Light in the Piazza, just came out in record stores everywhere a couple days ago, this past Tuesday. And I was told that just before we started, you haven't even heard this yourself. I haven't it's heard so it. New. No, I haven't heard the final mix because um, we've been very busy. <laughs> over, they keep me very busy over the Vivian Beaumont. But um, I'm, I mean, I've heard some early mixes, but uh-huh. I haven't heard the final mix. I'm, I can't wait. I'm really excited. We were all there, you know, listening to each other when we recorded it, but I haven't heard the mix. Should we play a song from it? Yes. Let's, let's what do it. What would you like us to hear? Why don't you, let's do the final song, um, Fable. This is the last um, song from the show, and it's 
It's moving for me because that's that's that was my introduction to this piece. That was the first song I ever heard um, from this piece, and um, it's a summary, I think, of what Adam and Craig want to say. Um, Clara is uh, getting married to her Italian boyfriend Fabrizio, and uh, the, right before this, Clara has run to see Fabrizio to be reassured that everything is going to be okay, that he really loves her, and. She sees her mother outside the, the, the church and she says, I can't leave you. And Margaret says, yes, you can. And then the daughter steps into the church and Margaret um, takes a moment for herself <laughs> outside the church and um, struggles with if this was the right decision and in hopes that her child will actually be able to find a lasting permanent love. From the brand new, underline the word brand new, CD of The Light in the Piazza. That's Fable, Victoria Clark, and the role of Margaret Johnson. How did the music change, if at all, over the, the two and a half years from Seattle to <laughs> Workshop Seattle, Chicago to here? It changed fairly significantly. I mean, the core and the heart of the piece have always stayed the same, even from that, that reading in Adam's Loft uh, two and a half years ago. But... Um, <clears throat> There is what we finally refer to as the Benjamin Britten song, um, which was something Adam wrote just prior to the critics arriving in Seattle, which is about 17 pages of fairly difficult recitative um, that occurred in the first act, which which eventually led to a reprise of a song that Clara sings, that Kelly O'Hara sings, called The Beauty Is, um, very melodic. But what preceded it in Seattle was a very challenging musical sequence, um, very psychological, full of leaps and turns and twists that um, where Margaret is confessing what happened and how she feels it's her fault that her daughter was injured. So um, that <laughs> that I actually performed all through Seattle and learned overnight, much to my neighbor's dismay. I stayed up to three <laughs> o'clock one morning learning <laughs> that and literally slept with it under my pillow just for just for help to see if it would help. And um, and then when we got to that stage in Chicago at the Goodman, um, Robert Falls, the artistic director, heard it once in the first run through. <laughs> suddenly that song wasn't there anymore. <laughs> We're like, hmm. So I think uh, – so what happened was they just pared it down. And then what what they've been experimenting with is moving the pieces of revelation of how much the audience knows about Clara's um, – about the fact that she's retarded. Well, yeah, it's not exactly retarded. It's like a traumatic brain injury, okay. occur, you know, from an accident and it has affected her. She's developmentally disabled. Right, in various ways. And it comes out in strange ways, just like dra- traumatic brain injury can affect a person in all different kinds of ways. And um, so in those days, they probably did say she was retarded, but today we say developmentally disabled. So... Um, yeah, and then the other big musical piece um, that's new is the song for for Fabrizio. Let me just take a peek. Who is the the, the, the Italian love interest lover of, of Clara? Called Il Mondo Era Vuoto. Easy for you to say. Yes. <laughs> See, I'm not allowed to really speak Italian well on the show, so that was fun. Um, and he th- he does a beautiful job. Matthew Morrison does a beautiful job with that. That's all new. And then there's a piece called American Dancing, which we tried briefly in Chicago, but um, it's instrumental. It's fantastic. It's it's uh, it's really jazzy and fun. Um, and Michael Barras has a 
has a feature in that number, and it's it's um, those things are new to the New York production. It's interesting as we talk about this show to to also reflect on another show that you're involved in the original production of, namely Titanic. I think <laughs> of these two only because they're not, I think the word anti-musicals would be wrong, but they're not conventional musicals. They don't follow the form That's my favorite kind. of musical comedy. <laughs> and so I'm wondering how this experience differs even from the Titanic experience. Well, they remind and- me of each other also. I'm, I'm glad that you drew that comparison. I... I'm very fond of that show. We had Richard Jones was our director who was not interested in making it a typical musical. And Richard Jones was not primarily a musical director. He was a classical theater director just as Bart Schur right. is best known for, for classical this theater. This is Bart's first musical. Hmm. And we, he would say he sometimes he would get a kind of a quizzical look on his face. He'd say, I don't really know what to do here. And we'd say, we're not going to tell you. It's best that you not know what people usually do. You know, let's just do what you want to do. And we all we always supported Bart in his choices, and he's working here in this production with Jonathan Butterell, who's a genius, musical staging genius, and a director himself in his own right. Um, he, he's done Nine and Man of No Importance and Fiddler right now is running on Broadway that Jonathan did. And the two of them together um, really sort of redefined for me what it, what it means to be in a musical. There's... It, it, it's very non-musically, and so was Titanic. <laughs> well, take us back. Take us back to Titanic. Well, what, ti- was, what was that process? Titanic. You know, honestly, it was such a joyful experience from beginning to end. But honestly, I really thought the phone was going to ring any day from the stage manager saying, "Don't come in today. We're that, folding." That the show's been canceled. Oh yeah. I mean, even in rehearsals, because I just everybody was laughing at us, and Maury Yeston and Peter Stone were like, "No, no, no. This is great, 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 great." And Maury's very can-do, and Peter, you know, God bless him, he just he had just seen it all and done it all, and he'd come into work with that briefcase, and nothing floored him, nothing fazed Peter Stone. And he, I mean, we would sit down next to him during previews and rehearsal, and he would just have his notepad there, and, you know, and he would look at things, and he'd go home, and the next day we'd have new pages, and think every day, piles and piles of new pages, every day, piles and piles. So, I mean, the, the major difference is we did all our out-of-time out work here in town. That's the major difference. I mean, we spent two and a half years on, on Piazza out of town and changing things. Yet now out-of-town isn't what it used to be because of the Internet. And during Titanic, the Internet buzz wasn't, wasn't uh, well, as notice big a where deal. We, well, notice where we did Piazza. I mean, Seattle and, a, you know, a small, beautiful theater. We love the Intamon, but, you know, it's pretty – we were off the radar completely. And in Titanic, everybody knew about it and everybody was laughing. And then we had a kind of a problem to actually sink the ship. So there was this moment where way into previews before opening, there was an announcement that would come over and say, and now – a four-minute pause. This would be then, in the theater on the PA system? Oh, yes. Oh, uh-huh. yes. And then the house lights would come up to half and everyone – some people go out and get M&Ms or do whatever they needed <laughs> to do. And then, you know, then we could continue. It was very complicated. And the whole the whole deck of the stage had to, you know – Had to uh, tilt. It, it tilt at a 45-degree angle and things, things had to slide off. And, um, but it was absolutely um, – a stunning and, and thrilling experience. And we had people championing the show. We had Rosie O'Donnell came and saw it and told everybody they had to come see it. And 
well, and then they did. Well, you, <laughs> and then you, we ran. We won Best Musical. We ran for two years. Well, you, you said people were laughing, not for the intended reason, because you were having those problems they weren't with laughing hydraulics and at the performance, per se, but it was even the concept at the idea. because of the show people yeah. didn't grasp at the you time. You know what? Nobody laughed at the show. There was like one thing that we used to call ships on a stick. There was this concept of uh, like like showing where the Titanic was and where the you know the the east coast of the of the northern you know northern North America was, and we see the little ships going along, and they were sort of on these little sticks, and that that got a few giggles. But people in general did not laugh during the performance. They laughed at the idea of it, and then after they saw the show, nobody was laughing. Everybody was quite moved. But also because it was getting negative press because of the hydraulic problem, because the ship wasn't tilting and, and all that. Well, right? you know, yeah. It was – yes, and we never actually saw the ship. Mm-hmm. So you saw the inside. Well, the, you saw uh, one deck, deck at a deck, time. Yeah, yeah. Right. Hmm. But it was uh, – I, I mean I the, – the kinds of musicals I like best are the unconventional kind. And I've been very lucky to be involved in some really, you know – some really unusual and, and creative projects. That's that's absolutely been my favorite thing. Well, Titanic, the musical, of course, was by Maury Yeston, mm-hmm. and uh, quite a, a notable score for that show. Yes. Any favorite songs that you have from that? Well, I mean, you should probably probably listen to "I Have Danced," which is uh, uh, I'm singing here with Bill Buell, who played my husband um, Edgar Bean, and in that show, I played Alice Bean. And um, you were second class passengers. We were second class passengers, and I, uh, you know, from the Midwest, and I wanted to uh, go up and be one of the first class folks. <laughs> so this is uh, this is me telling Edgar that uh, you know what I really want out of life. A song from Titanic. I have danced. As sung by the Bean character. <laughs> there was something I read that any time that they needed additional uh, dialogue to allow for a scenery change or something backstage, they'd fly in a drop and they'd <laughs> send say, out the beans. Send out the beans. Get the beans out there. <laughs> the two of you. Well, Bill's a brilliant comedian. He can make anything funny, and his style of comedy is um, much more technical than mine. So he would say things like, "You know, you'll get a much better laugh if you, you know, just turn your head a quarter more downstage to the right." And I'd be like, oh, you know, I cannot think about stuff like that. Just let me go out there and be funny. He goes, no, I'm just saying. You do whatever you want. But if you turn your chin a quarter <laughs> more downstage <laughs> to the right, you'll get it. And he was always right. It was so maddening. Um, but, uh, yeah, they did tend to send us out for if they needed to fix things backstage. You know, <laughs> They would send us out. And actually the beans did exist. <clears throat> and in real life, real I life. spoke to someone from the bean family. And in real life um, – uh, Edgar, the, the husband, his real name was Edward. He did live. He was picked up by a, a lifeboat and was nursed uh, uh, on the Carpathia, and they found each other back on uh, the docks. Ironically, they were both on the Carpathia at the same time and didn't know it. Was that the case? Did Correct. I read that? Yeah. But Peter Stone couldn't use that in the music. Oh, please. When I found that out, I came jumping up and down and running over to him. And he goes, that is so weird that people would think that was contrived. He goes, I can't sit. He says, some things are so, so strange that we can't use. He goes, I can't use that. <laughs> now, your two most recent Broadway credits, you went into already running shows. You went into You're in Town and you'd gone into Cabaret. Right. And that's a different set of, of challenges. Yeah, that, those, those, that's, that's called learn the show in you know less than a week and have the fastest costume fittings ever and then just get thrown up there and 
you know, in both cases, I replaced geniuses. I mean, Michelle Pock, I replaced in Cabaret, and then I replaced Nancy Opal in Urinetown. And so, I mean, they had already staked out fantastic territory. And um, it was great for me because at that point, my son was um, four years old and eight years old. And so I didn't have to, you know, in those cases, a week of rehearsal and a Broadway salary are, you know, that's financially smart for and me, as, a as a mother. As creating a performance, on the one hand, you don't have the luxury of spending a lot of time exploring your character. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you kind of just have to get up there and, and do it. Right. But I, I think I'm – I mean I can safely say that I, I didn't do anything of what those girls do because they're, you know, as I say, geniuses. And I I pretty much went in and created something new on my own. And they, both Sam Mendes and John Randy were very supportive of that and – and very encouraging. So even though I replaced, I feel like I did, I, you know, I did my own thing with them. From an audience member's perspective, to hear you only have a week of rehearsal before you're out there on the stage, that sounds like a very short amount of time to learn the role, to learn the dialogue, to learn mm-hmm. the lyrics, to learn the movements and all that. Well, I think technically they always say, you know, two weeks. But by, you, by the time you, you come to the theater and you watch the show one night, the next show is a matinee day usually, a Wednesday. So you don't really rehearse because stage managers are busy. Um, then your put in is a you know a week Friday after that, so it's really ten days. I mean, wow. you may not go on for two weeks, but it's really, it's it's fast. It's fast. So then, when you sit in the audience and you watch somebody else performing the role, how do you then avoid imitating them? I don't watch too much. I usually watch once uh-huh. and just take notes uh-huh. and just get the shape of the show and then exactly. do your thing. Exactly. Now you mentioned earlier in the interview um, that you teach. I do and. <laughs> I'm curious as to is it's just vocal teaching or well, acting as well? Well, I sort of well, mentor or? people. I mean, my my teacher is Edward Sayeg, and he is um, I, I believe he's the greatest voice teacher alive today. He he has um, he comes from a trend, uh, a 200 year old Italian tradition um, that goes all the way back to uh, Manuel Garcia, who was the tenor for whom Rossini wrote the Barber of Seville. And Manuel Garcia was um, a teacher, composer, um, brilliant singer, performer, actor, and conductor, and parent. So I, 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 I wouldn't say I would model my life after that kind of Italian model, but the idea of being an artist in all different kinds of ways appeals to me because I think um, – you know, making a beautiful meal is an art. Being a good parent, a creative parent, is an art. Um, singing a song beautifully, acting a scene beautifully—they're all—they all come together. And unfortunately, in this country, we have a tendency to compartmentalize and to be very close-minded about expression. And I think that um, my teacher has taught me to really take some of those limitations and boundaries off what my expectations for myself are. And that's what I try to do when I teach. So it's it's much more mentoring. I mean, technically, I guess I could say I teach vocal technique and arrange audition classes for them um, so they can get better at their auditioning. But what I'm really trying to teach them is how to get at the root of what they want to say as actors and help them to find – an instrument that is, is as strong and as seamless as possible and a technique that really serves them so that they can do um, any role that they want, you know, as, as well as they can do. And are you doing this work 
obviously when you're in rehearsal, you don't have a lot of free time to be to be teaching. But now that you're into a run, are you performing in a show and during the days going and working with with other performers? No. And, and what no. does that do? No, I'm not because I'm I'm not. This role is is special because it takes a lot of me, it takes a lot of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you're on stage most of the show. <laughs> it does. And, it, you know, it's emotionally exhausting. It's vocally exhausting. But more than that, it's emotionally exhausting. So for me to really – my priority priorities right now are being a mom and um, giving every audience that comes to the Vivian Beaumont, uh, you know, the best – the absolute best performance I can give. So unfortunately, my students are – are waiting, and I told them to call me at the beginning of May, and then the nominations came out, and I said, "Oh no, no, everyone has to call me now at the beginning of June." But they're all being very patient, and they email me, and yeah. I have to really watch how much I use my voice, and sure. and 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 who gets my energy these days. So <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's going mostly to the audience and my son. Now we talk about teaching; the other side of teaching is learning, and you learned a lot, I guess, at Yale. You went to Yale, yes. And I read somewhere that when you were attending Yale, you really wanted to be a director, not an actress. Well, yes. <laughs> I only performed my freshman year there, uh-huh. and then I switched over to directing. I did a lot of directing then. So, um, and when I moved to New York, I came as a director and was in the musical theater program at NYU as a director with George Wolfe and, you know, all those writers. I mean, uh, let's see, Winnie Holtzman, who wrote Wicked, and Jeff uh, London and Art Perlman, who wrote Wings, and uh, Laurie McKelvey, who's a wonderful composer, and... Um, George was sort of the star of the director class. There were only seven of us and only two women out of that group. And I was the youngest one. And people sort of look at me and wonder if, <laughs> wonder how I got in, I think. But um, that, that directing only lasted a few years. And uh, I, Ira Weitzman, who is um, the producer of musicals at Lincoln Center now, all good things start with Ira. I mean, he was over at Playwrights for years, and before that he was a casting director, and all good things start with Ira Weitzman. And he um, he actually set up an audition for me for Sunday in the Park with George because, he, had, as a director, he'd seen me audition the writer's material a million times with all these different parts. Hmm. So he had seen me do about 450 parts over the course of a few months, and so he just said... There was a, there was an opening for me to um, play eleven parts or something in Sunday. <laughs> so, so we, we always hear of actors who want to direct. In fact, you were a college student who wanted to direct. Do you still want to? I mean, right now you have your play. Well, actually, full, I just but... directed something at the Ninety Second Street Y. There was a there was a series, the Lyrics and Lyricists series, mm-hmm. over there, and I just did a program of Matt Gordon music, who wrote Chattanooga Choo Choo, and Charles Osgood came on for us and hosted it, and we did it all as a live radio broadcast, and Robert Kimball who was a professor of mine at Yale, was the artistic director for the evening. And it was a lot of fun. And I had forgotten how much. We had Christine Andreas and Jason Graw and Amber Edwards, who's a college friend of mine. Um, it was I had forgotten how much I missed it. And now with all this going on in your life, you have summer vacation for your son to look forward to. Except that mommy will be working. So we're planning, you know, I don't know, 100 weekend trips. Although <laughs> if he makes the... Um, if he makes the tournament baseball team, uh, he he believe it or not, he has three hours of baseball practice a day, Monday through Friday. And you'll be a baseball mom on the sidelines cheering him, right? Yes, he's 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 quite the little athlete. I'm very busy these days. <laughs> Even as we speak, he's trying out for uh, to to be placed on his travel soccer team. He's yeah, he's 
And then tonight he's playing his cello and singing in the school concert. Wow. He's very busy. Full plate for both of you. Yeah, he needs a personal assistant. Well, Victoria Clark currently starring in the Vivian Beaumont Theater in The Light in the Piazza. Thanks so much for being with this us This has today. been a lot of fun. Thank Likewise you so much. Us. Thank you. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs and all of the educational and media programs of the American Theater Wing are available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheater.com. Wing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.